Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk. I'm your hostess with sometimes the mostest, Jana Lopez. And as many of you have listened over this past year, I've had some very interesting dynamic guests and how I come across them is always the surprise to me. And so I'm here with Rabbi Josh Rose and uh, he it was based in Portland, Oregon, and the way I came across him is I'm sure we've met in person at some point amongst mm-hmm. the Jewish community events and auctions and whatnot. Uh, but I would say I got more familiar with you through Facebook, the blessing and the curse of <laughs> our time, and I've followed you anecdotally about your music posts and whiskey ramblings and you know which (laughs) (laughs) never never a great idea to do that uh live and publicly but hey I think it's fine I have had (laughs) plenty of those trust me uh there was one post in particular though that was recent that really drew my attention to you and what you're experiencing now and what I wanted to share and talk about. And that was related to your decision about leaving your congregation Mm -hmm. and the rabbinical life as you understand the formality of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I really appreciated was there was a very deep Caringly deep introspection around your process and mm-hmm. your choice of having to do something, which I'm sure was not an easy thing to come to and probably didn't happen overnight. So I wanted to talk about that process and read you a few things from that post and really unpack that because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, Anytime we make a major life change or decision that we know will affect other people, it takes something extremely unnameable. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it does. It, it can be, um, we both know what we're talking about here. It can be frightening and 
and uh, life affirming and challenging to navigate it in a way that's um, whole and not selfish and but also tends to self. But anyway, yeah, please do it. But first of all, let me just say I'm I'm really excited for the conversation. I'm really honored. I I uh, came across your podcast and listened to some of the episodes, and you're you know as a person who loves conversation because as a way to connect hearts and you know you're you're you ask really beautiful questions and you really help people get to real places and um so i'm i'm very inspired by your your gift and i love the podcast so i'm i'm very honored to be here thank you i i appreciate that and well there's two places i can go but the first i want to go to is that word when you talked about self-tending and i had a very recent epiphany around the word selfish and that is, you know, when we talk about being a Jew, I'll just use this for as an example, you know, you're Jew-ish, right? You're <laughs> sort of something, you're yeah. sort of ish in something. Yeah. And I think the idea is selfish has such a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. But when you start to get honest with yourself about yourself, you know, mm-hmm. you are becoming more ish in yourself, right? You're getting mm-hmm. to be more connected to an exploratory and uh, an attribute of something starts to come alive, to come to life. So this idea of selfish got me thinking that that word has had a bad rap and that the word actually means we get more closely acquainted with who we are in ourselves. Right. It doesn't seem negative in that light. Yeah. You know, it, it's a really for me, this is this is the, the crux of the biscuit, as Frank Zappa once said, that it's really the there's this moment where, you know, I, I think that in the Jewish tradition, as in every religious tradition, there's a very strong suspicion of self um, because there's the authentic self that exists in connection and relationship to all things. And then there's the kind of ego self, which is always trying to maximize itself um, and to, to gain, you know, whether it's uh, to, to look cool or to get money or power or influence or just caught up in the illusion of living life in a way that you're always trying to make things, it's all about me, 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 me. And trying to navigate between those two modes of selfishness is, is difficult. Uh, but I think if, if one can't, in those moments where we can open to uh, the selfish in the way you're discussing, I think it it ironically, not ironically, it, it uh, paradoxically, it actually brings us into greater contact with other people. And, and at least in my experience, I have, um, I feel more connected to others and more tuned into others now that I kind of followed this quote unquote selfish path. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it does. And what you had written in your post was, um, you know, and I'm going to put it in context. So it's not just a line on its own, but you said to me, I was a self-involved narcissistic jerk off. And now I'm a self-involved narcissistic jerk off who is working on being less. So, (laughs) so what I want to say about that are two things. First, I think when you're in a position of power, for lack of a better term, when you're a leader of Mm -hmm. any kind, Mm -hmm. uh, take a rock star, take any person in in a clergy situation or leadership role or political power. Mm -hmm. But when you're somebody who commands the attention and admiration Mm -hmm. 
of an audience, mm-hmm. um, it would be easy to have it affect an ego. Like it would be easy to become uh, some somewhere misplaced in like, wow, look at me, you know, I am mm-hmm. important. Not that you would want it to turn into something negative. Right. But the other side of this long question is that how did you switch or create awareness around the type that was only focused on an inward, you know, or an ego place and then look at it as maybe, Hey, I need to be going to a place where that comes out somehow different. Sure. I mean, I would say a couple of things. One is, I think what you're saying is true about positions of authority, whether it's religious or whatever, that they, they, they can lead you into a, um, an, e- an ego space. But I also think every person is born with that, you know, so these are par- fundamental part of the human condition. And then we, you know, the goal is to work yourself out of it. So I, I was referring to, to that, but also, and this is, this is why um, I think when I wrote that in the, in the post, I was trying to make clear, especially in particular to people who have known me as, as their Torah teacher, as their rabbi, Right. That I, I was not fleeing from the world of, of Torah, uh, running away from it with any anger or hostility. On the contrary, it was Torah. So this is my answer to your question. It was Torah right. mitzvah that uh, gave me the ability, as I think as it does for everyone who takes it seriously, to begin to ask questions about um, who I was in the world and how I was conducting myself and that challenged my ego-centeredness and that gave me spiritual tools for self-evaluation and for course correction and for trying to be a mensch, which is ultimately, you know, what Tor is doing. So that was kind of the irony as I sort of left religious life. um, I also realized, I, I, I believe that it, that it opened my heart and made me a better, a better human being, a better husband, a better Abba, father, uh, and I hope a better person, but it was, it was time for me to, to end that relationship. But um, it was the thing that gave me that perspective. And I love that because you say just before that Torah remade me and mitzvah reshaped me. So we'll talk more about specifically sure. for people that don't understand what Torah and mitzvah relate to. And I would say that what you, when you were speaking, I got this idea of the trilogy that we always have to navigate. And sometimes we're more aligned with it or honest with it than others. And it's the philosophical belief of how we look at the world, our understanding of it. It's the social morality, the stuff that's imposed on us or that's expected Mm -hmm. of us based Mm -hmm. on who we are or our roles. And then there's this idea of who the fuck am I, right? Like, and, you know, we (laughs) always have to understand that at any given time, yeah. Any one of those might be navigating our ship. Yeah. I love, I love how you put that. Right. And all three intersect, right. I mean, um, cause every one of those things influences the other. Uh, yeah, I, I really, really, I love how you, how you put that. And that last question, I mean, I, I think that for so many, for so many people who are, um, who have not had the powerful religious teachers that I have had, either by encountering them in texts or just in person, um, they they maybe don't know that 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 third question, "Who the fuck am I?" Right, um, is is actually a, that is the foundation of all Torah. 
Um, and I, you know, it's funny to find myself talking about Torah and Bible for people who don't know the word Torah. Torah is just the, the Hebrew word for the Bible. Um, uh, it's not where it's not where I'm expecting the conversation to go, but I just I do want to point out because it was so much a part of paradoxically of what I've what I've become is that Mo, you know when Moses is at the burning bush, um, God says, "Hey, hey, hey, listen, you are going to go to the most powerful." you know, political entity in the world, and you're going to topple it. And Moses says, who am I that I would go to Pharaoh? In other words, I'm a nobody. I'm a shepherd. I'm an outcast. Right. And there's beautiful teaching that the, the, the first words of that sentence, who am I? Moses is actually saying more than he realizes that God is drawing out of him what, what sounds like just a practical, humbling question like, oh, who am I to do that? He's really saying, who am I? Right. And that that is the birth of the entire transformation of Moses and the people and the world and of Egypt, because one person asked that question at the deepest level. So and I think if you were to ask that question, three little words over and over again as a practice, I bet you would get a different answer every time or yeah, it would evolve beautiful. or it would grow. Like, who yeah. am I? That's right. Yeah, and, and who am yeah. I, you know, like the, the emphasis of where yeah. that question rolls. Right, right. Who am I? That's right. And I'll, yeah, I think I, I love that point so much that it, it's interesting because it's, it's a fundamentally destabilizing question. And therefore, you know, we can't you can't ask that every day. Like when my son says, hey, Abba, can you make me a sandwich for lunch? I can't say who am I, am I the, you know? <laughs> having an existential moment yeah. amongst the baloney or right, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. We it, like it's <laughs> the Turkey. You got to get life done, man. You know, you got, and, 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 but if we're only getting life done and we don't find those moments to say, who am I, then we're, you know, if, if I'm the same person I am now a year from now, that I don't think that's good. Um, you know, we got to be open. The, the world has changed necessarily. That's, that's what it's about. And so, um, creating a, a structure and a balance and a through line so you can have responsibility to the people around you and the world around you, and yet opening yourself to the dynamism that's just built into you is the whole ballgame. So a lot of people are afraid. And I think if I were to put my money on a table and make a bet about what drives people, my my guess is the fear is like the number one thing that makes decisions or indecision or causes us to put ourselves or not put ourselves in situations. So even being open and understanding, really understanding what does that mean? And what does that, at what cost and what do you need to do to become more open? I teach in my writing retreats and the people that I work with who work on books, the first step is like the possibility of possibility. What do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked. It sounds like a cliche, (laughs) but I think we have to even be aware that there's more to be aware of. Right. We have to understand that the possibility of possibility has to exist in this openness in this place. It's so wild. I mean, because I think that that, that what comes up for me when you say that is that I think that there's, there's a meeting point of humility and audacity because 
you know, if, if you have the humility to say that there's a whole world or a whole truth or a whole reality I haven't even thought about yet, right? That requires humility to say, like, there is a different order of thinking than I have in my head right now. Then you, with that humility, you open yourself to the audacity of, like, what might I do next? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I mean, do you like that word audacity? What do you understand that word audacity to mean? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Why, why did I grab that word, audacity? I mean, first of all, it's just a nice word to say. It has a, <laughs> a word. You can appreciate that as a writer. Yes, a I can. I do pick words that just sound good. Yeah, yeah. It might have been that. I just mean, you know, I, I guess, I'm, again, I, I guess I have in the back of my mind, uh, I have the, 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 uh, I have in, in mind Moses. Um, it's funny. I haven't, I have not had a, a Moses conversation in a long time, man, because I've, I've stepped away from, from Torah and, and I'm just reading other stuff, but you know, Moses, the Torah tells us that Mo, it's one of the few character descriptions for those who don't know how the Bible works. The Bible does not work like modern literature. You, you'll appreciate this as a writer the, the the Bible rarely describes a character with adjectives in, in the extended way. Like if you, uh, if you were writing a, uh, a portrait of a character in a book, you know, you'd write a lot of adjectives and you'd say the person was like this and that. And the, the Torah rarely does that. It usually describes people through actions they do. But it does tell us in one of the rare occasions where it speaks like this, Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth. And it, it repeatedly wants us to see Moses's humility. And most people, when they think of humility and making yourself small, they think of somebody who's sort of timid and 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 not imposing herself on the world. But in Moses's case, that humility led him to complete audacity, to the thought that this shepherd in the middle of nowhere was going to overthrow the most powerful empire in the ancient Middle East. So that, that's what I mean. Uh, you know, if you have humility to think there's a different ordering of reality, you can find yourself thrust into a position in which you have to become the agent of the creation of some new reality. Yeah. And I think the way you described it, I was, I was trying to connect on either unapologetic courage or naive courage, or maybe both because mm -hmm. in, in a place of the way you described audacity about making bold moves and, you know, I just think courage, uh, but, but what is attached to it? Is it, is it unapologetic courage because there's kind of a fierceness yeah. when we do something that's audacious or is yeah. it more like, I don't know any difference. So I'm going to do it anyway. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I can tell by the way you talk about it, that you're a person who's, who's walked through this because these, yeah, <laughs> these the, the questions that, that come up. Um, oh, oy, uh, as they say, oy, oy, yeah. Oy. yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, it's funny. I, I, there's there's a thread you introduced that I don't want to lose, but I do want to answer your question because I just want to put as a placeholder there. You talked about there, there's a there's a kind of a stasis, a staying still that comes from fear. Yeah, which I think is true. But you also introduced that sometimes it's simply from not knowing that there's a different way of being. That was the second thing you said. And I yes. think that those are both true, but they're different. But um, to your last point, you know, I think. A couple of people have said to me, 
um, this is going to sound self-aggrandizing, but I'm going to I'm going to try to deflate it. A couple of people have said to me, "Oh, you're so brave, you're so courageous for doing what you've what you've done." I've heard that one. Yeah, and I really, <laughs> I I it really doesn't resonate for 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 two reasons. First and foremost, I and I want to just say because there are people listening to this podcast who are contemplating changes in their own lives. Right. Um, you know. I, First and foremost, it is an immense privilege to, you know, one has to be in a position of relative privilege to make, to kind of confidently make the, the left turn that I made. Um, or I, should, I guess one doesn't have to be, but it, it greases the skid. So, you know, I'm, I, I have the ability, I've had the ability to kind of navigate my finances in such a way. I'm aware which, of what you're saying. Yeah, it's true. We, you know, we had to make adjustments. My, my wife and I had to make adjustments, obviously, and da, 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 certain things you have to let go of if you're going to do this. But at the end of the day, I was able to do it. And there are a lot and of by people, it, you mean making a change professionally in your career. Yeah, when to you walk away, yes. yeah, to walk okay. away from a stable career in, yes. you know, in, in which there was more whatever, more, uh, you know, I, I, right now I don't have an income. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm doing fundraising. I'm trying to get stuff, trying to cover my costs, yada, yada. Next year, I'll try to build in an income th- for, for this, but you know, we made budget adjustments and gave up certain things, but we were able to do it. And so I just want to point out that there are people who are far more courageous and brave than I am, who don't have the, uh, who would have to, to reach a much higher bar to make the change. But the other, the other thing is the reason it doesn't feel courageous or brave is to your point, the last point you made, which is sometimes you just don't have a choice. Uh, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't keep going as a rabbi. Um, it, it would have required for me to do that would have required a, le- a level of inauthenticity and faking that would have just dishonored the Torah and the position of being a rabbi and would have dishonored my congregants. Like, I, you know, you can't fake it in that kind of job. You can't pretend like, you know, if you're a dentist or a lawyer, um, you can, whatever, you go to work, you don't have to deeply believe in the, you know, the ultimate meaning of what you're doing. Like, you know, maybe you don't love your job, but you do it. A clergy person, it's not like that. And so I just couldn't keep walking down that path because I had changed internally. And so it doesn't feel courageous because it just felt like there was no choice, you know. I, I understand that. And uh, for people who have, had big choices that they knew that were going to have some emotional repercussions to those around them. Let me tell you, I, I understand that. And that's something we started to talk about earlier was that you hear this saying about being honest with yourself. At least I have heard it my whole life. And, you know, it's just one of those cliches you could say, look at the bread on the table. Mm -hmm. And that has as much meaning, right? Like there's just Mm -hmm. no, and we hear these things, these platitudes all the time, but to really understand and feel and know in your blood cells, what being honest with oneself means what that mm-hmm. entails, what that provides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel grateful that in all of my own changes, I went through some vast changes. I had to make big changes in my life. I had to, to mm-hmm. come to terms with the marriage that, you know, it was basically out of love that I left that marriage, you know, to love someone so much and realize that you can't be or give them what you know they ultimately need is just heart wrenching. Mm, 
Yeah. And to leave a city, you know, like leaving Portland and starting somewhere new. But but the idea, I don't want it to be about what I did. It was just more about the process of how I had to recognize and how many of us have to recognize there are those places in our humanness where we have the opportunity to face what we know maybe is true, but, but the hardest thing is, is catching up or recognizing it. Right. In your case, was it like when you began to sense that you needed a change, what did immediately that fear of like, I don't want to hurt him or I don't want to hurt others. Did that. Oh yeah. It took you a while to realize that that was going to be the implication. And I mean, I think there's that I don't want to hurt him, but also this is not what I pictured. Mm-hmm. My life was going to be this way. Right. This was who I was going to be. This is right. how I was going to be. This is right. where I was going to be. Yeah. Um, it's more the disconnect or the disparaging sort of uh, off, you know, kilter lack of connection between what you're feeling is unfolding as truth or, and it takes time, right? And then this picture that you've embedded in your mind of what life is supposed to look like. I think we all have that. Yeah. And, you know, to do that with a sense of integrity and responsibility, it's very easy to say, like, you just got to follow your heart and change, but that's, you know, that's just a bumper sticker, man. That doesn't, it is. Are you any chance? Are you uh, a Neil Young fan? I do like Neil Young. So by the way, he has a great song called Santa Fe. Um, <laughs> Neil Young, I, I'm, a, I'm a very big music fan, a very big uh, Neil Young fan. And I often, music often gives me a, a way of thinking about my life and what I'm doing. But it, it, just biographically, in the case of Neil Young, we read his biography. And I can't remember the name of this excellent biography out of him. But, uh, you know, he... He, he so Neil always like reinvented himself musically. It's one of the reasons. In addition to having a gorgeous ear for melody and a I love his guitar playing and blah blah blah. You know, you listen to a, a Neil album from 1972 and you listen to one from 1980, and you know, he just was constantly doing following his muse, and the sound is radically different. But you you then read it from the perspective of the people who knew and loved him. He was brutal. He was brutal. Um, when he decided he was he needed a different sound than his band Crazy Horse, which is you know his famous band, he would just disappear, just boom, he, because he decided he wanted a different band with a different sound or or whatever, and he did that in relationships as well, and uh, and he was ultimately like to the people. It seems to me, I mean, I don't know the guy, but it seems to me that to the people immediately around him. He was he was unknowable and dangerous because, you know, emotionally dangerous, because in order to follow his muse, he was just going to do what he had to do. And um, I mean, you know, he's a more interesting guy than that. But, you know, there's something about that. And I, I think that while I love him as a musician, I think I would have hated him as a person. And I so I think that that there I don't know that there's an answer to this thing we're talking about, the, the relationship between you're pursuing a truth that you know has to be and allowing yourself to be who you are on the one hand and then fracturing those in the world around you i don't know that's so painful and like i feel the way i answered that which was really a flimsy 
answer, but it was, it was two things that brought me comfort in that time when, in the unanswerable and in that realm, Mm -hmm. one was I truly and wholeheartedly in my DNA believed that I was doing what I was doing out of love, that even though it wouldn't be perceived that way or received that way, that in my heart of hearts, I was clean in my conscience yeah. that that it was from love. And sure. so that kept me rolling forward. And I think the other thing is the recognition that you cannot carve the path of somebody else's path, no matter right. how much you feel you can or do yeah. or are responsible for another human's being path. And I recognized there's nothing I can do to deflect somebody else from having a human experience. Right. And that yeah. includes loss yeah. and grief. Yeah. Yep. You can't protect other people from the truth or from reality. Yeah. When you were talking about the Neil Young and his way of going about his need for expression, right. Or his connection to himself or his exploration of his life, his humanness, uh, something that came to mind is how the public, and maybe I want to, I want to lead into how this relates to you. Uh, but the public people that think they know things or people get really mm-hmm. unforgiving. And so I look at Led Zeppelin at the end of their time before John, John Bonham passed away and their music was changing stylistically. It was right. not what people knew and disco right was up and coming and it was like they people tore their album coda like people just tore it up there was no forgiveness but then you get somebody like david bowie who was never the same who's a chameleon and people love it right they embrace it and they take it so why is it that's so interesting the public can be unforgiving to those in some circumstances and and not in others so how it Mm. relates to you is in your post, you had said for, for people that really know, know me throughout this time, this won't be a surprise, but I recognize there's going to be people who have a perception of me. This may not make sense yep. or align. Yep, so right. how, how did people respond when you announced that you were leaving a rabbinical position? Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I love Coda is an underrated album. And I, and <laughs> I love, I love your, uh, I'll be thinking about that all day now. The why uh, David Bowie's of the world can, you know, there's a certain magic they have and style that they have that allows. It's accepted. Them. It's accepted. And, and there's an artistry to his changing of styles. And then, yeah, Led Zeppelin, people wouldn't kind of let them move out of that. Anyway, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's a great question. Um, yeah, you know, it, it was, I, I was, I mean, I'm so unbelievably blessed with the people I've known in Portland and, and in particular with my congregation. And if there are any Portlanders, you know, listening to this, I just want to say that uh, the community of, of congregants at Sherry Tor was so beautiful. And because and, I'm moving in directions that, you know, for people who've been there a long time, they, they don't relate to it, but I've been so supported. I was supported when I came there and people have sent me off with love. There, there definitely were people who were surprised. I think some people's surprise I won't ever hear about, but they're seeing posts, you know, I like I posted myself there. There was nowhere to work in my house because everybody was making noise and it happened to be a Saturday and I'm no longer observing Shabbat. So I went outside in my front and, you know, my motorcycles parked in front of my, in front of my house and I put my I put my desktop computer, uh, on, I mean, my laptop on my gas tank. 
and I had a beer positioned. I was not driving my bike, but I had a beer positioned between the handlebars. And I, I, my wife took a picture and this was on Shabbat and I'm sitting at my computer on my motorcycle drinking beer. Right. And I think there are people for whom that was shocking, but I'll never hear about it from them. So par a part of it, I can't answer. But the people who reached out um, were, were, some of them didn't get it, but I largely felt support. I will say, I think maybe the best way to answer your question is that there are, there's a small circle of people, and this is something I still feel ambivalent about. There are small circle of people that I, I as a rabbi, I, I converted them. I, they, they sought me out to help them in conversion to Judaism, which is a trying path. I mean, it's, yeah. it's magnificent, but it, it ain't easy to be an observant Jew. And of course, when I took them on, I was an observant Jew too. And I was teaching them about the beauty of observance and circling back to them and seeing their reactions, because these are people who are in some cases younger than me. And I finished their conversions not so long ago. And I, my heart breaks a little bit. For, you feel guilty or like, you know, like you disappointed yeah, them or. I, yeah, I do. I feel, I feel a little bit guilty. I feel a little bit like I've, I've. I misrepresented who I was to them maybe, or, the, or I fear that they feel that I did, um, that I led them down a path and then abandoned them. Um, so, you know, that th they've all been beautiful about it. They've all said, listen, you gotta do what you gotta do. Um, uh, and then also, you know, it's funny because though I didn't grow up in a, an observant family, my, my father was a reform rabbi, but our, our personal practice at home was not so observant. Um, my mom and, and my mom and dad both, my father died in, in February of 2020, but my mom, who thank God is still part of my life, you know, it was a little bittersweet for her because on the one hand, it was like, it was a little easier to navigate certain things around meals now that I'm being not, not keeping kosher. Um, but she loved, she, she came to love seeing her, her boy walking around with a yarmulke on and, and, uh, <clears throat> and, um, yeah, there's definitely a, a sadness for her. Um, what about for you, though, too? There had to have been some grief in hmm. your process. I'll tell you, my, my grief had to do with letting go of what I, what I thought I was, I was going to become. By the time I ended it, on, on June 30th was my last day as a rabbi. By that time, I, I really was quite ready I felt like I had done everything I could to prepare myself, my community, and really to help my congregation take the next steps. And I felt really good about that. Go back so, a year or six months. Yeah, right. So if I go back, right. Um, you know, listen, I every I think when you if you're an ambitious person, and when I say ambitious, I don't mean for power or money, but you know, you got dreams of how you want to impact the world. Um, I did not wind up as the rabbi that I dreamed I would be, right? And um, letting go of that was, well, letting go of it was ultimately liberating, but fighting against it for the previous years, you know, like my, how life is unfolding is not what I thought it was going to be. That internal fight was, that was the painful part, you know, because yeah. I, I, was, I was attached to this vision of being this amazing yes. influential rabbi who was weighing in on not only on spiritual matters and guiding people you know this was all ego it was not good this is not good torah this was ego you know being a certain kind of spiritual teacher but also being like a, a respected voice on public matters and i just realized that for whatever it was i, I didn't 
that wasn't who I was ever going to be. And as long as I was attached to trying to make that guy happen when he was never going to happen, you know, it was painful. It's exhausting and sad. Yeah. And it made me a grumpy jerk and uh, around my family because I was constantly in a state of feeling less than because I wasn't achieving what I thought were my own dreams. And until I could see that those were not healthy dreams, um, at least for me, they weren't, uh, you know, as long as that was the case, I was going to be unhappy. Once I realized, oh, that's just not who you are. And that's okay that that's not who you are. At that point, it became more of a more of a logistical question. It was like, okay, I can be happy, but right now I'm I'm in this job and I've got a job to do. How do I navigate that? And that had its own challenges. But the deepest pain was was my attachment to this person who I wasn't I wasn't destined to be. I understand that. That's like a, a, a kind of a loss and a grief. That's that's what I wrote my book about. Um, right. I wrote a book called Me, Myself, and I. And it's a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are. It was all around the process. So how long, can I ask, I know that your job is to interview me, but (laughs) in your case, how long, how how much time went by of unhappy attachment to what you thought still should or could be? And then what what, what led you to kind of say like, oh, this just is- That was going to be my question for you, but (laughs) but I'll say- um, I think time in this way is like a matrix because there's the internal sort of edging along towards those nagging questions that never seem to leave that at some point we eventually decide to pay closer attention to. There are the circumstances in our life that shift or change that prompt us to hurry up that process or tactically try to resolve some sort of a conflict. And then I think there is a recognition of something that happens at some point where you recognize you're no longer on that other side of the fence, but you're on a side of a fence that's moving in a new direction and you didn't even know that you you arrived. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that breaking is, yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it is so funny because once you, in, at least in my case, once you realize that this isn't working, it, then you just have a series of challenges. But in my case, the, the, the heartbreak ended once I realized it, as I said before, like, okay, now I got these challenges. How do I do this in a way with integrity where I don't let down my congregation and I help them? But the pain of not being this other guy ended, and uh, and so that that's a that's a weird that's a weird position uh, to to be in. But you know, again, it, I think it what what keeps coming up for me in this conversation is this relationship between, you know, you, you have to have some level of stability in your in your life, not only for yourself, but you know, because we all know people in the world, you know, I. I um, and but you also have to remain open you know you, in other words I, I believe the way i see the world and i know not everybody sees it this way everybody we're all we're all connected and we all owe we all owe something to the people around us you know whether you like it or not if you've got a neighbor even if you don't know them you owe something to them like you know if they get sick who's going to take care of them right if, you know doesn't mean you have to be their primary taker, but you, you see you see the point I'm making. We, you have you have a network of moral and ethical obligations. 
and um, that just come in with being a human. But we, as you and I are are saying, like we also have to, if we're going to be our fullest selves, we have to remain open to different possibilities that are going to bring us in new directions. And it's it's just a it's a dance. But when you find yourself in a deep relationship, whether it's with a person or a congregation or a community, those those can be really painful moments of breaking. Uh, and I and you know, sorry, let me just take one pass back to the question. I think I, I over, I made it a little more palatable than, than it really was. There, there were people who were very bummed that I was leaving as the rabbi. Um, I, I don't think anybody felt like I was doing anything wrong, but there were people who were, who were deeply hurt because I was their, I was their spiritual teacher. Um, and, and they were the rabbi that they wanted, that they wanted to be at their child's bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, or they wanted to help yeah. continue to teach them Torah. And, it was deeply painful for those people. And, and um, I, I don't have a great answer to that, except that I wasn't the person that they imagined I was. We're not even the people we imagine ourselves as being. And <laughs> I mean, I think that's where I talk a lot about expectations and judgment and what that means in how we show up in our life and that could be in relationships or professional yeah. roles or yeah. as leaders particularly right. as leaders and then there's that part that comes around that says depending on what you believe we don't really know a lot about what happens later in death or after life yeah. or things change shit happens covid you're in your house for a year and everything's changed and nothing's changed. And right. so for me, the grace I gave myself and huge, huge, profound, profound lesson was the idea of learning how to live in a paradoxical space in, in my humanness where multiple things can be true. Mm. They may not coexist, but mm -hmm. they can rightfully both be true. So for instance, I am somebody who I see myself as being loyal and loving and right. wanted to be a wife and have a life with somebody. And I am a human capable of causing somebody pain and disappointment. Right. It's about being the honest part, recognizing that multiple things can be true and then having to navigate it. So in your case, I think you could be a man who feels that moral, ethical community obligation to people. And you can be a man who is only trying to find his way and discovering those parts of himself that he didn't even know he needed to until now. Right. And yeah, and I, I love what you I love what you said, because you know, I, I, I do. That's right. It's living with paradox and, and, and living with the multiplicity of truths and just doing your best because I, I still have, there's still moments where I, you know, like the, the, the ideas of Torah, the ideas of, of or the, the, the religious ideas that are, are, are so deep and profound that have you in the very best ways questioning the nature of who you are. Right. Those questions like I, I, I took that stuff seriously. It's not just something that I like you put on a box and walk away. Excuse me, you put on the shelf and walk away. And so the reason I'm saying this is because I I've never felt happier and more authentic and more able to affect the world in, in, in a positive way than than now when I uh, now that I've kind of 
taken this turn in my life and kind of lived more authentically or openly. And I'm always, well, not always, but you know, I, I, I have a voice in my head saying, maybe you're just suffering under the illusions of ego. You know, maybe, maybe you're, you're just doing your thing because it's easier and it feels good, but maybe this isn't the right thing. And, uh, so, you know, it's, it's not, doesn't match up exactly with what you were saying, but my point is we have to, you live with, with multiple voices and you just have to be, you try to be attuned and, and honest with them. Um, but and either way you're right. And either way you're wrong. Like yeah, that is also true. the paradox. Like <laughs> it doesn't right. matter. Yeah. And everything matters. Yeah. Like yeah. that's part yeah. of it. It's like, yeah, that's right. Good for you. And that sucks. It. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say one other thing because it, it, there's a way <laughs> our, our experiences match up in another way that's really interesting, I think, very interesting and compelling. So, you know, I, I, I can list about 10 different, re, 10 different moments or, or events or transformations that ultimately led to my deciding that I needed to go in a different path. But one of them that is among the more significant is that my wife, uh, my beautiful wife, Hannah, went through her own process of self-examination um, totally independent from me before all this happened. And the short version is she, she realized she wasn't happy. She, she wanted more from me as a, as a person. She wanted a more open heart, somebody who was showing up more in the relationship. She wanted something different from her career. She wanted something different from the idea of a Rebetzin. For those who are not Jewish, a Rebetzin is... Technically, it just means rabbi's wife, but it has all these implications for playing a certain role in the community. She did not want any of that. And she wanted more than what uh, of, of the kind of the conventional view of what a woman's role is in our society. And she was on fire, man. And she was, you know, Bob Dylan has this great line in, in his in his uh, Chronicles, volume one, in which he's talking about certain awesome fierce, politically aware hip hop artists in the 1980s. And he says they were throwing horses over cliffs. And that's, I have this image of my warrior wife, just like gah, throwing stuff over cliffs, knocking over walls, not taking shit from anybody. And that caused a real rupture in our marriage. Like, because she was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And by the way, I, we both would have said before that started, we've got a pretty good marriage. But she tapped into a very deep unhappiness that she had. And, it, and I she, relate. Yeah. And, and she was like, I basically her her take was, I want much more out of life than than I'm getting. And, you know, if you want to walk with me, great. And if not, we're, we've got to talk. Mazel tov and l'chaim to her. At oh, least. She, she's, a, she's a badass. She's a warrior. Man. Uh. And that really, though it was harrowing and scary because I'm, you know, there was no way I was, I was ever, I was not going to let any opportunity go to, to hang out with this woman for the rest of my life. I'm deeply in love with her, but it caused shifts and changes. And so, you know, I think we all are aware that we're, you know, you and I are talking from the perspective of being, of being agents of change, but right. when we're being fully awake, the consequences are also being part of other people's change and being willing to let go of whatever it is. Now, thank God she and I found a, a way in. We've got a magnificent therapist. We're both much more alive, but her awakeness was one of the things that, that caused me to begin to 
be awake to my own situation and whether I was living how I needed to be living. So, so let me ask you about the other side of that coin, because religion um, often plays a part in people's lives in a way that can have some truly profoundly adverse yeah. implications. And nowhere is that more apparent. Of course, we can say, you know, now it's really apparent, but it's always been apparent. But when you think about what people hide under or hide beneath or ignore or judge or cast aside in the name of religion or in, in as been and as the religion is the thing that tells them how to be and how to lack the openness or the opportunities. I mean, what do you how do you feel about that when you see so much of that in the world where there's not only division, but I think people are lost. Those same people that say in the name of Jesus, or, yeah. you know, this is what's right, or this is what God wants. God yeah. wants my God, our God. There's only one God. It's our God. But when you see it in that context, how do you reconcile with that as somebody who's had to lead people in a religious yeah. framework? No, that's a that's a great question and, and, and a very, very important question. And, and I guess the first thing I want to say is there's no denying that uh, certain expressions of what people call religion, uh, of, of, of valid Christianity, of valid Islam, of valid Judaism, have caused real harm in the world. And that's that's something that is is true. Um, and I'm, ha I'm happy to talk ab about that because uh, I don't want to evade your question. But what comes up for me is, you know, Dylan has this line, this song, Gotta Serve Somebody. If anybody thinks that they're not following some religion, they're suffering under illusion. So in other words, you know, you, you, you may think you may, you know, you call yourself an atheist, but your life is oriented around I don't know, making money or seeking power or having your own ego influence. Like every, everybody is in the world of illusion and you cannot escape it. And the idea that you can liberate yourself by stepping away from, you know, ancient religions. And, that, and once you do that, you're now going to be fully free and fully cognizant of all the potential errors and you'll be, you know, free of influence is, is in itself an, an illusion and, and maybe even a more dangerous illusion. So I guess I just want to say that, you know, every ideology, political or otherwise, uh, has done real damage to people and can mess them up and destroy lives. You know, I mean, look, um, you know, if, 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 a, if a, what would you say about a religion that was taking people and uh, convincing them that Ultimately, what life was about is working 70 hours a week and, you know, and trying to squeeze the most out of your employees that you possibly could. And, you know, you know, buying a lot of expensive stuff that was damaging the world. You'd say that's a crazy messed up religion, but that's the religion that that almost every American has, even if they're not Christian or whatever. You see my point. There's a million ways to destroy the world and few ways to heal it. So, um I guess that's the first thing I want to say. Religion often gets a bad rap, I think, because the gap between its, its stated ideals and its practice is so vast. Whether it actually does more harm than other ideologies or national nationalism or other state ideologies or political, I, I don't know. But anyway, I feel like I've ev evaded your question. So you want to 
you want to hold me to it? I think what you're describing when you just, when you say stated ideals, first of all, to me, that's open for interpretation. Therein lies some of the problem. And also it gets to this place where these ancient religions, just like the constitution, I'll put that in there too, where these moral or ethical or social contracts were made at times when things were different. So how do account for this idea of yeah. religion yeah. on these ancient ancient ideals or stated ideals yeah. in a context of changing times. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. That's such a great question. That's a really, really smart question. I can't, I mean, I think, I think every, every religion has its, um, has its answer to that. I can give the Jewish answer to that. Um, and by the way, you know, I, I just want to say one thing one thing that I, that often frustrates me, or well, I guess used to frustrate me more, now I have less skin in the game, but um, that people who don't know anything about religion will hear, you know, some knucklehead priest or knucklehead rabbi giving some subpar answer on a radio show or whatever. And then they, you know, like this one, maybe I'll give a knucklehead answer. And then they say, well, that, you know, that's, that religion represents that. And that's stupid. If you want to really know, you know, maybe you will ultimately not agree with religious answers, but if you want to know, like find a master teacher and track that person down. You know, you're, if, if you draw your conclusions about, if you were to draw your conclusions about physics from your seventh grade science teacher and you were like oh science is stupid and doesn't make any sense you know who would do that no one you know you track down the, the the best scientific writers of your day and then you read it and then you make a judgment so anyway that's just an opening thing is people are often uh you know you, you there's as with anything there's good teachers bad teachers good answers bad answers find out the best answers before you judge anything but anyway the jewish answer to that is what Jews refer to as the oral Torah. And if I'm getting overly technical, just- No, it's good. This is great. Jews believe that at Mount Sinai, in one way or the other, literally or less literally, Moses received two Torahs. There's the written Torah that we all know is the five books of Moses. Um, and then over time, other writings emerge. But then there's something called the oral Torah. Um, and there's various versions of what exactly people think he received at Mount Sinai. And again, how literally, but- um, but the oral Torah is teachings and mechanisms that guide us in interpretations of the written Torah. And the written Torah does not change ever, right? The written Torah is what it is that, you know, look up the, the first verse of Genesis to the last verse of Deuteronomy, that ain't changing, that is there. But the oral Torah, how the Jewish community living in the present makes sense of it and interprets the, 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 the written Torah, um, that process of interpretation changes over time. And that's why Jewish law changes over time. And um, though Jews often don't agree among themselves right. about how the Torah should be interpreted, right. even among the orth even among the ultra-Orthodox, they, they would acknowledge that that oral Torah changes over time and responds to emerging realities. So, you know, Judaism has built into it a certain dynamism, but I decided in my life that that dynamism, though it was there and though it's beautiful and I think fascinating, was not, was not dynamic enough for me and that I needed to be able to 
move through my life without regard to what that dynamic tradition said was uh, was in the realm of Jewish observance or not. Well, and I'm going to ask one more question around this, and then we'll we'll segue into what you're doing now. But when I talk about and think about with so many people in conversations, I mean, obviously, we surround ourselves with people who are mostly like-minded most of the time, and occasionally we'll have people that are outside of our circles. But the thing that gets me rattled, I suppose, when it comes to religion, and I am Jewish too. My dad was Mexican, so I call myself a Jurito. <laughs> but I grew up <laughs> I like in a Jewish that. home. But the thing that that confuses me, makes me pissed off, yeah. and leaves my head scratching is why there's so much hypocrisy and false indignance. Those are the two things that people will defend these ideals, many of which they don't even fully understand themselves. Yeah. They haven't researched. Yep. They can spout off all these things. Well, God yep. said, blah, 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 or the First Amendment says, blah, blah, uh, blah. And then there's this like false indignance around the defending of the ideals. So what do you think is in human nature yeah. to that degree to what's going on in the country 2021 that people are willing to defend yeah. to the detriment of themselves or their communities, these ideals that, that they have no relationship to and their the hypocrisy. Yeah. Well, right. So let, let me, let me speak clearly because I, I do, I, I think I, I, I sense what's on your mind and I want to be really, really clear that when I'm defend, you know, I, I'm defending a, certain religion, religious approach that I believe has integrity. But I think a lot of the people who call themselves religious in, in our age and in our country are idolaters. I mean, I, I think I, you know, so there, you know, you can call yourself a, a Christian and, and, you know, worship, you know, essentially worship a political leader who's made his whole life about searching for money and, you know, trying to use women I mean, sure, you can call yourself a Christian, you can call yourself a Martian, you can call yourself anything you want. It doesn't mean you're not an idolater. So uh, what is it in human nature? I think human, human beings are, uh, are, you know, we have an essential capacity for illusion and, and corruption and cruelty. And whether we call ourselves religious or not, human beings have been doing that for a, a very, very long time. And in America, I mean, American yeah, I, I'm I'm a person who sees great beauty in in other religions. I have a master's of theological studies where I studied Confucianism and Islam and Christianity and Judaism. So I've got no chip on my shoulder. But I will just say that large swaths of the American evangelical church has just turned into a massive idol worshiping machine that's based on cruelty and brutality and tolerates the grossest kind of materialism and political corruption. It is not Christianity. Um, so, you know, there's a problem built into the question, I think, because you're saying, how can religion do X? And I'm saying, simple, it's not religion. Um, so because if it were really about Christianity, it would be about healing and goodness and love, and it would be about holding to account, uh, corrupt, cruel, evil people. I can't make sense of it. I can't mentally, cognitively conceive of the level of hypocrisy of people's blind yeah. religion. 
of yeah. or faith. Uh, I, I don't even know what to call it, right? Like it's just yeah. it's just something that we don't under I can't understand it. And I you don't know, know that's that social scientists will be examining. It's oh yeah, oh yeah. Decades no, I, if we I, make it. <laughs> I, I I completely I completely agree. I mean, um and by the way, though, though I'm I'm holding evangelicals to account because they played such an important role in our country right now. Obviously, every every religion has has its own version of that. But I think, um, listen, it, it's as old it is it's as old as as uh, humanity. I mean, you know, the, the there's again to return to the Torah. Um, the the first thing that happens in the well, one of the first thing that happens in the Torah is that Adam and Eve lie to God and try to hide and so the, so immediately the relationship of 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 the true relationship to god is immediately mediated uh by by human dishonesty and corruption so it's you know the the torah itself recognizes this is an inherently problematic part of the human god relationship and then while moses is up on you know the most probably the most famous story of the torah even people who don't read it when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, the Israelites are building a golden calf because they can't handle the the absence of of, of knowing what the what the ultimate truth is and how they're supposed to live, they, how they're supposed to live. They fill up the vacuum with the golden calf. So this is not a new story. It's just a, a question of which golden calf each generation is going to uh, create. Did you feel that there was a time over the last four or five years where where people had a sense of being disillusioned or lost, or was there, was that part of your council with some of your congregants yeah. and in terms of politically what's happening in our country? I think it makes people think bigger than just the politics. I think it's like, if you can't question, if you can't trust the foundations of your truth and understanding about these systems and structures that seem to be falling apart or in disarray or in chaos, yeah. Then what? Man, it's this is such I mean, this is the question of our time. I mean, I, I was just listening to a podcast this morning. Um, Marty Barron, the editor of The Washington Post, was being interviewed by Vox, the Vox Media podcast. It's worth listening to. Yeah, no, this this was a real this real deal uh, in our in my congregation and every congregation and really congregants just feeling you know, I, I think in general, my congregation was kind of, you know, left-ish leaning, um, not not massively so, but the election of of Trump had a very profound impact on people. It was it was really a great cause for despair um, among people. And you know, I, I mentioned those like ten different facts that ultimately led me to decide I couldn't be rabbi anymore. One of them was was just what was happening in our own country in ways I can't quite articulate. I just felt like I need to get, a, I need to do something different in the world. I need to live in a different way. So yeah, it was very profound. It was very, very disillusioning to people. Um, but and religion's know, supposed to be the answer. And then when it's the problem, not problem, if it's the yeah. source of confusion for people, then I think it's double whammy. Yeah. The thing that was supporting Trump was not religion. Right. It wasn't. It, it was people saying that they were religious, but they're not. They're idolaters. So, it, you know, we can't be confused by the language because the, you know, the what, what at the heart 
uh, you know, and this is going to drive atheists who are listening to this completely bananas. Uh, and and it, I feel weird saying this because I'm I'm not living in a religious, quote unquote, religious way right now, I'm trying to live in a good way. But you know, every religion. But I, I guess I'll just I'll focus on Judaism. I mean, ultimately, Judaism, the purpose of of Torah, is to give you a give you a foundation for not falling under the sway of the illusion of the world, of the illusions of the world, and that is to be rooted to something that gives you, you know, you were, you were speaking earlier very beautifully about sometimes we don't change because one reason we don't change is because of fear. But the other reason is because we just don't see some larger reality. And the point of Torah is to give you a reference point for a larger reality. It knows that humans being human, they're going to get lost. We're going to get confused but it gives you a measure by which to evaluate political leaders and economies and everything. And so you, it gives you a perspective to say about American capitalism, it's brutal and heartless. We need to find a way to help heal people. Right. Um, and it's, you know, and to say of political leaders that that's fraudulent and godless and cruel and God demands something more of me than allegiance to a political party. Um, that's, that's really what Torah is. A thoughtful engagement with Torah will lead you to asking those kinds of questions. So I don't think that um, true religion should not get a bad name because people who are idolatrous worshipers of power are using the garment of religion to parade around in. But, uh, you know, I don't know if that's convincing or not, but that's how I see it. That's good enough. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. So where did that lead you on your path now? You did you alluded to this idea of how to yeah. do the work. And you've had years of education. You've yeah. had thousands of conversations yeah. with yeah. people. You've led a community, many mm -hmm. communities. You've led several mm -hmm. communities in that mm -hmm. way. You've been part of the community. You're from a long line of a rabbinical historical generations of <laughs> community rabbis. and rabbis. So where is it leaving you now? You describe this idea of bringing out the work into the world. And even yeah. if that means having a beer on a motorcycle on a Saturday with a laptop <laughs> and you've got these ideas, what are you dreaming about right now? Well, what I'm dreaming of right now is uh, I, I'm, I've created an organization that hasn't, hasn't fully launched yet. It's called CoLab. Um, and uh, the tagline, actually, which I'm, I'm still tweaking, but right now the tagline is Growing Creative Jewish Portland. And it's a project based in Portland. And the idea is uh, really based on a, essentially what you just asked me, because what I'm doing is I'm reaching out to individuals, sitting down over coffee or beer with them and just saying, really, this is literally the question that started this whole thing. If if you could wave your magic wand and have the Jewish Portland that you wanted, what would it look like? And then I try to emphasize, I have no expectations, forget everything you know about Jewish life. What would just make your Jewish life rich and meaningful and, and significant? And then based on those dreaming conversations, we're really just building things. So, so we come, somebody will share an idea with me. And we'll, I'll find if there are other people who share that dream of building something like that. And then we're just creating events, programs, and conversations to manifest those in the real world. Let me give a couple examples. 
and, and before I give the examples, let me just say that for me, the, the, the goal ultimately is to take the, those ideas that come up from what, what I dream together through these conversations that I have with people and try to, to uh, add some Jewish value to them um, and then also try to have them have some larger public value. So let me, let me just, let me give an example. Um, I, I want to, um, uh, somebody mentioned an interest in psychedelics and uh, I've got a friend who's studying shamanism, who's, who's Jewish. And we sat down and we, we dreamt like, you know, why, why doesn't Portland have a conversation that's emerging elsewhere about the intersection between Judaism and psychedelics. And so now we're, we've expanded this conversation and I'm, I'm meeting with a larger group of people, nine, 10 people this weekend to begin to think about how do we, you know, could, could we build a, a conference or an event where, where we really were bringing in experts who have thought about the intersection of perhaps Jewish spirituality and psychedelics or an emerging important conversation, um, intergenerational trauma and the use of psychedelics to process trauma. Then there's the, the public good element, which is that Oregon passed a drug, drug decriminalization bill, mm -hmm. which the kind of social justice emphasis, emphasis of Judaism has something to say about because that has implications for class and race in our country. Right. So, um, so that idea is now taking off just because a buddy of mine said he was interested in, in the topic. Um, we're also doing thinking about doing events of, uh, of a, a Passover with and for the houseless, because I don't know if people know, but at the beginning of Passover, you're, what, what you're supposed to do at the beginning of every Passover is you hold up a piece of matzah uh, and you say, this is the bread of poverty. Let all who are hungry come and eat. But usually what we do is we, we sort of mumble that part and we close our door. But what if we really just opened our Oh, no way. You leave the, the door open. Elijah's coming. Yeah, that's right. Later. <laughs> but I know, you know many people forget there's this unbelievable ethical imperative at the beginning of Passover. But what if we actually worked with a local Portland homeless organ, houseless organization and planned this event with the houseless community, found ways maybe to make it a fundraiser to support them and sat down to eat with houseless people in Portland and showed them the beauty of, of the Haggadah. So, um, you know, it's still information and it, it is in its nature, very dynamic. And, and uh, but essentially it's about bringing people together to dream about the possibilities of, 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 of Jewish life in all of their creation, in all of its possible creations and manifestations. What it's drawing on heavily is people who either have no interest in synagogue life at all, and who, but who want some Jewish meaning, who want to be part of some Jewish community that's dynamic and exciting and out of the box. But it's, uh, but it's also drawing on, on people who are part of a synagogue community, but want also, they want something that's, they're not going to find in their synagogue, a, a kind of conversation, an experience, a creativity that they're not going to find in their, in their synagogue. And, um, yeah, you know, it, uh, right now I've drawn about 50 people into these conversations. I've got about, we've got about six or seven programs that are emerging over the course of the year. Um, I already mentioned the psychedelic one. We're developing a, a, a out of the box rite of passage ceremony for young, young Jewish people. Um, a number of other things, um, a program in the arts and, uh, and trying to support local contemporary artists here by getting their work in front of audiences. 
And uh, I've got an advisory group of, of uh, mostly young, but not exclusively young people, uh, Jews in their, in their 30s who are giving me their perspective. Uh, I've raised some money around it um, to, to get this thing off the, off the ground. And I'm looking to launch programming um, in mid to late September to, to, to do the official launch. It's been unbelievably exciting. And um, I've never been more jazzed by my work than I am now. Excellent. And I, I had a couple of questions. I'll just put them all yeah. together as one. Yep. Uh, what does the name mean? What will your role be? And yep. how are you going to stoke and ignite your own consistent inspiration? Oh, that last one is so huge. That's, that's such a great, great, great question. Um, so collab, uh, really, it's funny because there's this word that exists, collab, which is like short for collaboration, which I wasn't hip to, but apparently that's a word that people use. And I heard that word and I thought, well, that, that's awesome because it has within it the abbreviation of collaboration, but also the way I spell it on the website, C-O slash L-A-B, draws out the laboratory part, that is the experimental nature of this. So, so the name collab, C-O slash L-A-B, mm -hmm. suggests both collaboration, which as I already said, is at the heart of this thing, and a kind of laboratory uh, environment in which we're just trying stuff. Like, let's, let's see if this works. Let's see if that works. You know, there's an experimental nature at the heart of this thing, which is open and free which makes it exciting. Like as an executive director, it's a nonprofit? Yeah, more, yeah, more or less. I mean, that's effectively what it is. I, I, right. I'm not sure what my, what my title will be, but it's, it's executive director insofar as I'm the guy who's in charge of making sure that these conversations happen and that, uh, that people have a way to engage. And that, you know, at the end of the day, I was saying to my mom, I'm now, you know, I'm, I'm rabbi, I'm CEO, I'm human race resources, and I'm the janitor. I uh, used to say that all the time when I published exactly. a magazine, I'm the CEO and I'm the janitor. I get it. That's right. So I'm, I'm right now kind of doing everything, but I would say my, my, my chief role is in helping people open conversations. It's, uh, it's funny. It's a skill that I didn't, I wasn't aware that I possessed. I was using it all the time as a rabbi, but now right. my ability to open up people in conversations and to identify uh, mutual interests among people and connecting them is, is probably my most important job. But my title is probably director. I'm not sure yet. W the work I'm doing now is so tied into what you and I are talking about, th this kind of openness and the dynamism and openness to change. Because... Um, what what's inspiring me is other people's energy you know and and i i think that that's what is what is sustaining me and that's also the engine of the work because it's not the case that i have a bunch of ideas and i'm trying to put them out there and then get people to attend the event um it's that I'm finding people, I'm speaking openly with them about what really jazzes them and where their hearts are and what they really care about. And then hearing the ideas that come from them and then saying, oh gosh, that sounds cool to me too. Do you want to work on that? And that relationship is the thing that's bringing me inspiration and energy um, because the, the creativity of the people in Portland, the creativity of people in, in the Jewish community, and by the way, I want to say I'm now, if somebody is interested in Jew, Judaism or interested in the Jewish community, they can be part of Colab. I have no interest if you're halakhically 
Jewish, your mom was Jewish, your dad was Jewish, whether you're even Jewish. If you're interested in Jewish conversations, I want you to be part of Colab. But the creativity of people at this moment in Portland and in the Jewish world is so powerful and so potent and so uh, rich that that's that's what's inspiring me. But what what I'm what I've, I'm also aware of, and this really ties into our conversation, is as I was saying before, I, I feel so blessed and so happy and so fulfilled and so jazzed with what I'm doing right now. But your last question reminds me that I can't, I can't hold on to that. Like I have to be open to the fact that that too is, is, is passing. Like oh my I, God. I have so many ideas for you. It's crazy. <laughs> oh my God. Bring it to me. But you, you, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I I'm wh- what I'm working on now is I don't want to become attached to a particular outcome to a particular state of, of being as I'm, I'm set in such a fun mode of the work right now, but re- being open to change means being open to change, even when it's, it's hard. And so as I feel like I'm on top of the world right now and doing what I love, um, I want to do it responsibly, but I'm also trying to remain uh, open to the to the challenges of the dynamism that's built into the work. I, by the way, I want to hear all of your ideas. Yeah, no, I do have a few. I think that's a good place. Let's just uh, we'll continue the conversation. But how can people get a hold of you or about your organization? Or thank you. Yeah. So um, the website is collabpdx.org. PDX is the abbreviation for Portland. So C-O-L-A-B-P-D-X.org. And you can reach me at Rabbi Josh at, at uh, collabpdx.org. And those are really the best ways to get a hold of me right now. Eventually we'll have a Facebook page and a Twitter feed and Instagram and yada, yada, yada. But right now that's, that's the best way to do it. I will say that Though we will, Jewish learning is also going to be part of what Colab does. We're creating a Jewish learning program that's going to be dynamic and unlike anything else that people have seen. Um, and parts of that will be accessible online. But by and large, this is at this time a Portland-based project. So I'm always happy to read any email from anybody. But um, it's it's mostly for people in the Portland area who are going to be plugging into this thing. Excellent. Well, thank you, Rabbi Josh Rose, for a very interesting conversation. I'm sure we can uh, continue to talk. But what I hope people got out of this is that, let's see, what would be my parting words? I love the idea, the possibility of possibility. It keeps coming back to me as something that's just so organic and needed right now. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I would say re- remaining open and, and, um, remaining open to change and possibility and emerging ideas and trying to do that is in, in a way that's that's filled with love and responsibility. Um, I think somehow this is about that. I want to thank you. I, your questions are awesome. You bring your full heart and your experience to what you do. Just a really, really fun conversation. And I definitely want to follow up with you and hear your ideas. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe 
rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. Thank you.